You're listening to the Science Circle Podcast. It's a nonprofit program serving a global alliance of scientists, science students, science educators, and you. Welcome. Here we are with the very first episode of the Science Circle Podcast. It's a new program in the new year. I'm your host, Stephen Van Hook. So glad you're with us. In the episodes to come, we'll be visiting with experts in topics from astrophysics to zoology, reports from social sciences and the arts, and really just about anything else we find interesting. And when I say we, that includes you, dear listener. Let us know what interests you. The Science Circle is a nonprofit global alliance of scientists and science students and researchers and educators and simply the curious about science in all its forms. We unite online from our homes and offices, in live virtual settings and on social media. For some of us, it's early sunrise and others, it's well past sunset when we gather wherever we are in the world. And we share and inform and discuss, and we even have some fun. You might like it. So here we go. We're joined now by the perfect guest for the inaugural episode of the Science Circle podcast. Phil Youngblood is a professor of computer technologies for some 20 years. Before that, he was a teacher of organic chemistry and a researcher in exobiology at NASA. No doubt that might have been triggered by his lifelong love of the Star Trek series. Phil co-authored his first scholarly article at the University of Hawaii on plant pathology. He has served in the military and has visited some 40 countries and lived in 30 different cities and certainly learning much about the ways of the world and all those travels. This varied experience made Phil a perfect founding member of the Science Circle in 2008. It's a global online alliance of scientists and science fans and he gave the very first Science Circle presentation exactly 10 years ago on the topic of Anthropocene Epic, and he recently gave an updated presentation on that topic these 10 years hence. And Phil, it will be so interesting talking to you. I want to jump right out of the introduction and start speaking. Thank you for joining in. Hello world. That's what we usually say for programmers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see in your biography that you got interested in science very young at 10 years old. And what, what uh, sparked that in you? Well, I think it was probably before 10 years old, but what sparked it then was an interest in carnivorous plants. <laughs> they weren't like other plants. And so why? You know, why did, they ha why did they have a mechanism where they could trap insects? Why did they eat meat where other plants did not? <laughs> and so I was, became very interested in that. And that kind of led to uh, interest in chemistry, interest in biology, Exobiology, then, as you mentioned, at NASA, uh, and then into uh, computers. Well, and I just love that. While some kids were uh, refusing to eat their vegetables, you were playing with vegetables that could actually bite back. I love that. Are we, are we talking the Venus flytrap, or you, were you dealing with uh, something more exotic and hungrier? Oh, sure. Venus flytrap was one of them, but I still remember some scientific names like uh, Drosera rotundifolia, as far as the sun do and such. And that was back when, when I was 10, so I became very fascinated in that. It, just the idea of why, 
How did it work? Scientific curiosity. <laughs> Were you one of those 10 years old? Why? 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 <laughs> how? 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 Well, that's the perfect foundation for becoming a scientist. Uh, you've, you've been with the science circle now in a leadership role from the very beginning. You've certainly been a hardworking advocate for the program. Uh, let's look how far it's come in 10 years. Just talking about the science circle here. And there are members all over the world. You have presenters, some from very prestigious programs and universities. And now that you're working to expand the outreach into the world with these Science Circle podcasts, so many people, so many countries are now able to tune in and listen to you. How many, how many nations currently are uh, represented in the Science Circle membership? We knew early that we represented all the major continents. And it's, we very frequently have representatives from uh, South America, Europe. Japan, Asia. In fact, we're trying to make sure that we have presentations at different times because that's the one thing we can't change. People can change what they look like in the virtual world, but the one thing we can't change is the time zone. So we <laughs> have to accommodate people all around the clock. Well, and I'd sure like to hear about some of your experiences, how you go about accommodating that in this new technology as an educator. Uh, I did get a list from uh, Chantel, who is our uh, honorable leader, and she says there are now 17 nations represented in the Science Club membership. We got, oh, let me spit some of these out, Australia, Austria, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Hungary, India, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Netherlands, Russia, Sweden, Switzerland. United Kingdom and the United States of America. That's where we are today. It's not quite the United Nations, but still, that's a pretty impressive group of nationalities. And you think there's a pretty even mix. You talk about the continents of the world represented. When you have one of these gatherings, uh, people signing in, it might be morning, it might be evening. You see a pretty good representation of the world coming out. Yes, and that's the fascinating thing. I know people in Australia... Uh, who attend, and Japan, who attend, and I, we ask, what time is it there? Because we're <laughs> generally doing it around noon in the U.S., and it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, and they're still attending the presentations <laughs> for Science Circle. I always find that extremely fascinating. People are so interested in the topics. So dedicated, and I've seen presenters just trying to accommodate the uh, average time zone of everybody making a presentation in their time zone. It might be two in the morning, and here they are speaking with us. Some of the challenges that entails is trying to tap into the whole world live. And again, I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, just a little more background. I see uh, some of the other information I received here from Chantel. There's some 65 scientists and educators. And again, about that many in the uh, student group. There's more than 100 people altogether uh, who've been attending these. That's a pretty good ratio, too. There's a pretty good mix, isn't there, between the numbers of educators and instructors and students coming in as well? In the media we're using right now, which is a virtual world called Second Life, is one of the advantages that we find to this is that when you walk in there, you're an avatar. You can look like anything you want. And so it's a leveling field. In other words, your contribution counts more than your credentials in these presentations. At the same time, you have access to people that you would never have access probably in the physical world. Would, of course, love to see a little bit more representation from places which may be listening to this podcast that may not be able to visit a virtual world, such as Africa. For example, in Second Life, there was only a couple places from Africa that uh, were represented. So 
we're hoping that in the future here with different types of media that we're able to reach the world with uh, open education in, in science and so that they can experience the excitement and joy of discovery and exploration of different things like we do. Yeah, and what a wonderful thing to do. And boy, if there is a, a subject in the world that transcends nationality and borders, it's science, just pure rational science. It impacts us all objectively. And uh, and I think it's just wonderful that people are able to come in to the uh, virtual setting of Second Life as, as any creature they want to be. It, it doesn't only uh, transcend culture, it transcends species. And I think that's just a wonderful setting. I look at some of the topics and areas of expertise that people are bringing in. Oh, here's a long list. Let me just pick out a few of these. Anthropology, archaeology, astronomy, astrophysics, brain science, computer science, cosmology, dyslexia, economics, education, electronics, energy conservation, engineering, the environment, genetics, geology, history, languages, mathematics, neuroscience, psychology, quantum physics, radio and video production, transculturalism, zoology, and that's far from everything. That's nowhere near a comprehensive list. Way too much to cover, so let's just focus on some of your own presentation topics, Phil. You're one of the most active presenters in the science circle. So you launched the Science Circle presentations yourself, didn't you? You were the very first presenter some 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and I need to give you kind of a genesis of how the thing worked, too, is that Chantel, like the rest of us, found that this particular medium that we were in at the time, the virtual world, is that the world was represented, and you could go to different places. You could go to a virtual Japan or virtual Korea, and it was scripted, so you could sit down and play an instrument that you'd never played or uh, learn a dance or uh, costuming and such, and so... What Chantel already had a philosophy forum that she had where people would come in and talk about a particular topic, but then she kind of envisioned, since it had people from different uh, companies and different universities, that she could actually get vetted people to come in and talk on topics. And she chose science. And I'd like to also mention that in the way that we talk on science, it's multidisciplinary, and you may, might also include art, in other words, the idea of STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math in the mix. And so we, as you mentioned, there's a variety of fields. And the topic that I decided to talk about the time, even though it was, you hear about it all the time now, but it was 10 years ago, and that was the Anthropocene epic. That is the way that the humans have created a change in the Earth as vast as any geological age. And at that time, it wasn't talked about very much, but uh, it began a series of talks on that and related topics. One of the topics I had done in an earlier forum with an earlier group that was headed by the uh, Institute for Advanced Study was to look at some of the science and my own current uh, technology views together. So, for example, I'd talk about how networks work, telecommunications work, but then contrast them with how DNA and RNA work. And these types of topics people would look at and it gives them ideas. And you, the one thing with the farm that we were in in the virtual world is that much like you can on, on television or in virtual realities 
or augmented realities is we didn't just talk about it, we had models. So if you were talking about astronomy, you could resolve a model of the solar system or comets or dinosaurs or whatever it is that the topic you were talking about, uh, physically there with the audience. You could change the lighting levels. You could do lots of different things in uh, virtual reality or virtual worlds, and this enhanced the conversations. Basically, you're just you're limited by your imagination, aren't you, and what you can bring in, what you create? Imagination. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, I look at some of the topics that you've done over the years here, Phil. You've mentioned some of them yourself. Global climate change, calendars, serious games. You did a presentation on DNA and telecommunications. I'm very curious how you combine those two topics. So you did an hour of code, uh, an introduction to programming, and just an hour. These are all intriguing topics. What are some of the challenges in covering uh, some of these complex issues you're bringing in? And you're talking with people that may not have a science background, people who may be speaking English as a second language, a very rudimentary uh, level of English. How do you manage to accommodate all that and still uh, enlighten people on some of these important topics? That's a very fascinating uh, question because that gets to the heart of what we're able to do, is that since our presentations, uh, people can actually be there as a avatar, most of the presentations are somewhat uh, slide lecture type of things, but as I mentioned, you can bring in props, dynamic props. We can go on field trips to the Grand Canyon or in one case to ancient Abyssinia or to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, coral reefs and such, so that you can bring in that visual effect in, in addition to it. The other thing is that um, there are automatic translators. And sometimes, for example, we have people from Japan and other places where they can speak and it will then come out in the language you want, much like as if you have a translator on online. The other way we do it is that uh, it's the audience participation. In other words, you may have a speaker and the speaker is speaking at a level that may be not to experts but to the educated public, and yet for a lot of people in the audience will, and I know, I, I, I like to do it myself, is that when they're talking about, for example, they're talking about CRISPR and gene editing and gene therapy today, is I'd, is I'd quickly go online, find a video or a reference or something, and then put it in chat. Uh, other people will ask questions in chat, and uh, and part of the audience will... Uh, answer them. And it's amazing because, as you have mentioned, the audience is completely varied. It's not just a conference on people who are in the know on that topic, but it's it's students who have never uh, studied that thing, but it may be in the news or they've heard people talk, as well as experts, people with doctorates in the area. And that's what I find fascinating is the international audience, the international perspective, the audience participation, uh, the experts who can talk to this. It, it all comes to this exciting uh, boil, if you want to call it that. And even a um, transcendental experience. You talked about some of the visual qualities that you can bring into a presentation, but it's much more than visual, isn't it? It's actually immersive. You don't get just to look at a molecule, but you can actually mix with the molecule and and uh, shrink down and become even smaller and see the atomic structures of the molecule, not just as an outside observer, but as, as an immersive participant. Isn't that true? Absolutely. You can think of it as like the Alice in Wonderland type thing. You can literally 
Similarly, there's islands that are sponsored by NASA and NOAA and uh, the Mars Institute and Exploratorium. And there's places on the one with the Exploratorium where you can ride a atom and see how Brownian motion works. Or you can see on the one by NOAA how a glacier retreats uh, uh, due to global warming or advances and such. And all this is in three dimensions, so you can fly and look at different objects and uh, where uh, Darwin's uh, beagle and where you can go ashore and, and become the explorer and, and find things and go on treks and treasure hunts and, and such. It's in a totally immersive world with, no with noises and waterfalls and birds and such. I wish everyone could be involved in that, but if they can't, then they can kind of experience it uh, vicariously through our descriptions. Well, and I appreciate that. You've done such a poetical and artistic job of describing the experience, even though our listeners are just hearing the audio side of this. I think you gave a very vivid picture of what the experience might be like. Thank you so much for that. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We're speaking with Phil Youngblood, a professor of computer technologies, a founding board member and frequent presenter for the Science Circle. He's a former NASA researcher in exobiology and a fan of flesh-eating plants. I'm wondering, Phil, did that carry over into adulthood? Do you still grow and nurture carnivorous plants? I have. <laughs> I can't say that I have a, a green thumb, even though I work in uh, plant pathology. It's, it's more like I kill the plants, but I, I love them anyway. <laughs> but uh, it did, of course, the science uh, interest carried over definitely into adulthood. I'd like to talk a tiny bit about uh, the teaching part. As you mentioned, it's, a, it's an international place, teaching and researching. So one of the, in addition to just doing presentations, to a, a wide audience in uh, the virtual world, um, this has carried over into other areas as well. For example, in my university in Texas, we had some representatives from a university in Mexico come up uh, and they wanted to work with us with a, a double degree and they got busy and such and so they said, well, and I mentioned this virtual world and why can't we do stuff uh, between us then? And they said, well, we're busy. However, this is professor in France. And so I got together with the professor in France and we taught a Java class with French students, a multilingual class with French students and class students from Mexico, where we not only used the virtual world, but we used video uh, conferencing, a, like I said, a multilingual discussion group and the students created objects like a robot, a jukebox, a vehicle, a, <laughs> a flying airplane scripting with uh, Java programming and the indigenous programming of uh, Second Life. What, what's fascinating about the world that the Science Circle inhabits right now is the people from all over the world and the people that know the people all over the world. So, for example, I was asked to talk with a lady in Palestine in the Gaza Strip area, and I would never in the physical world probably have met her, but she works with children there so that they can vision the outside world, and we got together and did a research paper and, uh, that was an international conference in Morocco, and we're going to do some future work. But it's things like that that call it serendipitous, call it fortuitous. It's, it's the collaborative type of work that you can do. 
a scientist in Japan in um, an agency called Jamstech, and he's doing a modern museum. He it, he calls it. It's a spiral where you walk up, and it starts with art from the early prehistoric area, and then comes on down, and it has uh, both science and art mixed together, and then a area under the sea where you can descend to the bottom and and see fumaroles and creatures uh, there and. And just so appealing to young people, isn't it? I love to hear this as well, that you've expanded your outreach, not just across national borders, but across age borders as well. And what an appealing thing this must be for young people. How rewarding that must be for you seeing them come in, especially when we look back at how you yourself started in science so young, playing with plants and watching Star Trek. Uh, are, are you seeing budding scientists uh, that you're able to reach out and touch maybe that couldn't have uh, uh, contacted you in other ways? Yes. In fact, at the present, we had a presentation this morning on the gene editing, the CRISPR thing, and one of our group had brought their class in. And we often do that. You can often see uh, uh, groups in there, and the classes were asking questions, and then we uh, answered those. And so there'd be a physical presence back in the classroom as well as um, meeting in this one uh, virtual world. We've often done that sort of thing. What I like to hear is, is the types of questions people ask because it gives me a very good idea about what's going on in their head and then what level we need to talk with them about. In other words, what understanding do they have and then how we can broach the subjects at that level so that they have an analogy of what we're talking about. In fact, actually, it was kind of funny. Yesterday we had a, a meeting of our board, and one of the scientists is an astrophysicist uh, at Caltech. He said that sometimes uh, students will come up to him at the end and he go and tell him, "I really love what you said. It was so exciting. I didn't understand a word of it." <laughs> <laughs> but the idea, but the idea was the exposure, the interest. They they came and saw and were able to talk with a, an expert, and in time they will grow to understand what he is saying but now it's the it's the interest i as i mentioned to you i woke up at three o'clock this morning thinking about that i was i was thinking about not where i'm at now but where was i at that stage what drove me to science what drove me to continue in in education and to do this uh, at this time why the other people are doing this as well and it has to do with the the next generation the new the people that need to understand this, that have this enthusiasm, that just like we did and, and still do. Yeah, I love that. You uh, remind me of a quote by, uh, I think it was Albert Einstein. He said, well, uh, education is the flavor that remains once you've forgotten everything. And I think that's a large part of exactly. what you're doing. The experience of it, the feel of it, the taste of it, the smell of it. It's not in the details, is it? No, no. It's, it's in people taking, here again in, in this uh, world where you can be a student with no knowledge or an expert with a doctorate and, and years of experiences that everybody's there and they're all learning together from each other and, and uh, still share the excitement and uh, joy of discovery and 
exploration. Unrolling up their sleeves and just playing with it. You talked about uh, teaching yeah. some Java programming. As you could talk to your blue in the face about the intricacies of it, but nothing beats just uh, uh, putting up a playground and letting people dig into it, play with it, get their fingers dirty. Absolutely, and the frustrations that go with it and the joys of small successes and all of that with the hands-on approach. Absolutely, this is the most hands-on group and the most hands-on uh, platform we've worked in. One of the reasons we're doing this uh, podcast is we want to continue to reach out to people in the way that they can connect with us and, and so that they can share our excitement about these new things coming up and such. The world is still a... Uh, uh, we don't know everything. Tomorrow, in fact, actually the next couple of days, I was just looking at the NASA's New Horizons spacecraft um, that's going to be going by an object that we've never seen or known about and how they just discovered uh, a possible solution for dark energy and matter and such. And all these exciting things that are going on that young students are just now learning of and they'll be the leaders here tomorrow. And this is what, who we want to reach. Well, and certainly this is an evolutionary, it's an exciting time in some of this technology, isn't it? You've talked about some of the challenges that you face. How about over the last 10 years now? This is a really good point to look back. Some of the changes that you've seen, are the challenges getting easier? Are they getting more complicated? Are, are you able to take this into territories you might have envisioned 10 years ago? Are you going somewhere else entirely different with it? Uh, where, where do you stand today? How do things look? Well, the science is certainly getting more complicated, <laughs> So, now that, uh, both in my field and in the different fields. But here again, we have uh, people at all different levels that can speak to this. That's one of the, uh, the big things. Right now, we have, you have introduced me, and people know who you are. But how do you form a trust relationship or some sort of relationship with someone who you've never seen or who you don't see? In other words, you're hearing their voices, and they could be anybody. And they can claim to be anybody, but how do you form a relationship there? That was one of the things we started with. It's, it's much like the young people listening is that they have a handle in or some sort of a name that they use in the different social media. But who are they really? How do you form a relationship with somebody else on the other side? We had as avatars, we all had these names, but they weren't our real names. And so in order to do this, one of the challenges was, first of all, the idea of voice. We had never heard each other's voice. It was all chat at the very beginning. And the moment we started actually hearing people's voices, that, of course, changed a little bit of who they were. And it also was a risk for them to come out going, hi, this is who I am. When we actually saw each other, when we learned of each other's names and could look each other up and vetted people, there were some people that actually didn't want to do that and other people that said, of course, this is who I am. I'm not an avatar, I'm, I'm this real person behind this name or this in, in the social media, in this case, in virtual world. So that was definitely a challenge. I'll, I'll briefly mention the financial challenge, obviously, uh, to actually get together and technological challenges. In other words, something like a virtual world is difficult to get to for a lot of people. So we're looking for different ways to reach out that are not costly. You mean and just in terms don't. of like the bandwidth and the technology and the computer and the operating speed? Yes, 
And so we, we don't want that to be a barrier to uh, learning for people. And so we're looking for different ways to be able to reach out. That's uh, part of the Science Circle Foundation's uh, mission. Do you find the anonymity, is that a plus or a minus as people are interacting with one another? Uh, do they have that comfort level of, well, nobody knows exactly who I am, so I might experiment a little bit more? Or does that make it even more of a challenge that uh, uh, people aren't putting possibly their best selves forward? That's a very fascinating question. I, I love that one, is that the anonymity, the same way on social media, is both a, a plus and a minus, an advantage and disadvantage. Obviously, from a, an anonymous person does not have to be self-conscious about who they are or what they look like. Uh, in the virtual world in particular, for example, about 10% um, uh, of the people have uh, different uh, challenges, uh, perhaps physical challenges and such. For example, people who cannot, who may have a physical disability and can't dance. There's a place that we had, for example, about military uh, vets returning uh, from the war. Remember that this is uh, 15 or 10 years old now, and we had people returning from the war where they wanted to still be in uniform if they, because they felt more comfortable that way. They wanted to talk with people who knew what they had gone through, and so there were places for that. So the anonymity can play both positively and negatively, because here again, who is this person? Why am I listening to a lecture from a person who may not be an expert in that area? On the other hand, like I said, it's a leveling uh, field where if you can talk about a topic as an educated person, uh, a lot of my presentations I'm not particularly an expert in, but for example, one of the ones I did was on the evolution of eyes, because one of the other uh, professors who really was an paleontologist had been talking about trilobites and other things, and I wanted to do one on uh, the evolution of eyes, how they had developed from uh, just uh, sockets up to what uh, that uh, concentrated um, uh, rays of light up to, to the compound eyes and um, eyes we have today. And so I did a presentation on that. And that's what I really like about what we do is all the different types of topics, the, the risks, people take because they're not maybe necessarily an expert and also the risks of the experts talking to an audience who's not necessarily also experts. It all helps people to understand the whole nature of science and uh, as I've mentioned, uh, furthering the, the understanding and the, and the discovery and personal exploration and encounter and interacting with other people. And putting it all on the table. And uh, you remind me of the yes. great quote by uh, Martin Luther King is that we're living in a time where people are judged by the content of their character and their knowledge and their experience, not by the color of their skin, which uh, in, in virtual world may be a bright shade of chartreuse. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and as younger yes. people, are rising up into the ranks of Second Life. You've been around for 10 years now with the Science Circle. Are you finding that people are becoming more adept at this means of interaction that uh, is not so much of a challenge anymore, projecting their personalities into a virtual world setting? Are they getting better at that? They are, and there's a caveat there, is that basically um, there is a concept called hype cycle. Yes. And what it basically is is that all technologies... Uh, undergo a period where they are greatly exaggerated and hyped in the media, 
and then there's this trough of disillusionment where we're so oh, yes, disappointed. You know, it, you know it well. <laughs> yeah. The idea is that, uh, uh, and then people then people become a little bit disillusioned of it because it isn't a quick fix, and there may be things wrong with it. And then there are other people that go, "Oh my goodness, this is the future. This is something," and so they they stick with it, uh, just like scientists. They stick with it. They experiment. They make it better. They talk to each other. Uh, they look at ways in which it can work. Uh, it becomes better. It becomes better applications. And then people start hearing about it again. And then it becomes mature. And, and so, yes. And we achieve what's called the plateau of productivity, isn't it? Is, is that yes. what you feel like we've achieved? We finally, we can start ignoring some of these uh, complexities and the technologies. They're still there, but a little bit better in the background as, as we become more comfortable with them. We just focus on getting the job done. And, and it, it feels to me more and more like it's becoming that means that we've, we've gone through these cycles and we've gone through the hype and the disappointment. And now we're just digging in and trying to find ways to make this work well. Yes, and to connect with each other. That's exactly correct. And how has this uh, impacted your own methods of teaching over the last decade, even in an uh, on-ground classroom? Have, have you been able to carry some of this experience into that? Absolutely, and that's, that's the, the pleasure of this, and I'm not the only person to say that, is that um, because of this new kind of paradigm of thinking, the idea of being able to research with a lady in Palestine who I never would have probably met in the other way. Uh, the other, other ways of teaching, for example, bringing people in and going, okay, let's build a computer. And then it's like, well, what do you need? In other words, it's almost a Socratic method with uh, creativity. And so I don't, instead of just laying stuff out in front of people and going, okay, this fits into that, it's like, well, why, why do you need this? What do you need? Uh, let's make it. Let's uh, see how it fits together. Um, those sorts of things. And so it's a much more, uh, for me, I find my teaching to be much more creative and immersive and involving the students and not just my sharing what I know with them. It's wonderful to hear that those of us that uh, have been immersed in this experience are becoming better at it. The people we bring in are becoming more comfortable with it. But how about those outside of this as you speak to people? Are you finding that uh, online teaching in these virtual settings are becoming more accepted uh, among your colleagues? That's a, there's a yes and a no here. And any, anyone you ask about the virtual worlds in particular, you'll find that there are people that either what I call get it, in other words, uh, as the people that are strong proponents of the virtual world, and then there's other people that say this is a video game. And so they, for some reason, they don't think the gaming is serious. But the idea is that um, they, perhaps it's just the idea of change. But I think as we get further into augmented reality and, and virtual reality, where it becomes less distinguishable between what is real and what is imagined, I think that uh, it will become more accepted in uh, education. Uh, so I look forward to that time. And perhaps right now what we did uh, 10 years ago and even now is a little bit ahead of the curve, so to speak, but I think it will become more accepted. And it's certainly becoming more accepted by the people who are in the group. Uh, we, had, uh, we, we often get people who have never seen a virtual world to come in and, and talk. And, and then once they have had that experience, they go, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> and so uh, we, we call them converts. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, see, we can't be 
in a soul media. And that's part of the reason for these podcasts is that we have to reach out to people and be in the medium which they find the most comfortable so that we can talk with them and so we can share and they can uh, share with us uh, about their thoughts, their understanding, and it becomes a world dialogue and it becomes a immersive in, in more than one way. Uh, this is this is our dream. This is our vision or our, our mission. That's uh, why we're starting the podcast. Such an uplifting uh, comment as we begin to wrap up here. We we spent quite a bit of time looking back at the past ten years. How about taking a moment and just looking ten years ahead, the future of educational technology, the future of Science Circle? You've made it through ten years. Quite likely, you'll make it through another ten years. Do you think we're uh, going to be on a good course uh, looking at the decade ahead? Are they? going to be in sync, what Science Circle is trying to do, what uh, educational technology is allowing for? What's your vision of what's to come? I have to admit to being an optimist. <laughs> it's, I, I also have to admit to being pessimist at times. I think it's because as you, as you live longer, perhaps you've seen a lot. But I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that uh, particularly in the you coming back to one of the things you said is that science transcends boundaries. It transcends ages, it transcends nationalities and such. It always has, even before virtual world and before the Internet. The idea of discovery and exploration and sharing ideas with each other has always been there, regardless of the politics, regardless of the finances, regardless of the times and such. So I see this becoming a stronger thing. And if we can help in some way to uh, foster it, then that's what we want to do. So, but in 10 years from now, I actually see kind of a indistinguishable thing between uh, the physical and the imaginary. In other words, when you're in a classroom, everybody has glasses, and the glasses help them to, is an augmented reality, help them to see uh, what it is that's being talked about. So it's not just so people can learn in different modes. It's not just the person giving up and doing a lecture. It's not just the voice like we have here, but it's, it's the visual where they can reach out and touch and manipulate and change and ask questions and talk to each other. So I see nothing but positive ahead. Uh, if we can avoid some of the pitfalls that people do with regards to hoarding information, other types of uh, empire building, agenda building, that sort of thing like that. Uh, we, also, we also have to watch a little bit about um, some of the ethical and the uh, divisions between uh, rich and poor. And so that's one of the reasons, of course, we're reaching out to, we're trying to reach out to everyone and trying to have open education and free education on uh, science so that everyone can partake of what we've learned and we can learn from them and their perspective as well. Well, that is an optimistic uh, outlook for the future. No doubt informed by your early uh, attraction to Star Trek, which was also a very optimistic yes. vision of the future. <laughs> was yes. Much of it being realized now. Isn't that wonderful? We've looked at the future of education. Let's look at the future of uh, Phil Youngblood. What's what's next for you? You've seen much of the world, how it works. You've been in academia. You've worked in science, the military, research and writing. What uh, what would you like for the next chapter uh, to be for the Phil Youngblood story? Uh, I don't know the answer. It's just like in science. I have no idea what 10 years will be from now. I know I will be there. I know I will be engaged. I know I will be... Uh, as interested in things as I am today, 
Um, and so I'm looking forward to something that I definitely can. No doubt you will still be as you were at 10 years old, curious about the way things work in the world and looking to make your own contribution to making it better. Our guest today for this inaugural episode of the Science Circle was Phil Youngblood, a founding member of the Science Circle Board of Directors. He's a frequent presenter on science topics. If you can make it in World of Second Life, check out one of his presentations. He's someone who shares a wide range of experience and knowledge in new and innovative ways, reaching out to a global student body. It was a pleasure to talk with you today, Phil. Thank you so much for being a participant on this inaugural episode. I hope we get to do this again soon, and we'll be right back. The Science Circle is a nonprofit program based in the Netherlands with a recording studio here in Southern California. For more information on this podcast and other Science Circle programs, please visit sciencecircle.org. That's sciencecircle.org. This podcast is under Creative Commons license and is freely available for educational use. Until the next time, I'm your host, Stephen Van Hook. Be well. <laughs>